church, go ahead and be seated and take those Bibles and open them up to 1 John chapter 4 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. 1 John chapter 4, as you're finding your place there, I'll kind of tell you a little bit about uh, some reading that I did this past week. And I did some reading and, and I came across an interesting story uh, from Sir Percival Lowell. It's an individual who lived in the late 1800s, the early 1900s. Um, he was uh, a man who uh, was esteemed for his study of our solar system. He had a particular fascination with the red planets. And in 1877, Sir Percival Lowell, he heard of an uh, Italian astronomer who had uh, seen or proclaimed to have seen uh, straight lines crisscrossing the surface of Mars. And so Lowell spent the next 15 years of his life there in Flagstaff, Arizona, looking through a giant re re refracting telescope, and in painstaking details, he began to map out all the canals and channels that he saw on the surface of Mars. In fact, he also went on to publish several books on his findings. He published a book called Mars in 1895. Then in 1906, he published a book called Mars and Its Canals. And then two years later, in 1908, he published another book called Mars as the Abode of Life. Mr. Lowell was so convinced that the canals were, were proof that there was intelligent life on Mars. Life perhaps older and wiser than that of humanity. While this idea excited the public, and the public found it intriguing, most of his peers were somewhat skeptical. And today, we now know why, because today we know that things were not as they appeared uh, to Sir Percival Lowell. Space probes and have orbited Mars, they've even landed on the surface, and we have now mapped the entire planet, and no one has seen a single canal. So the question becomes, how could Lowell have seen so much that was never really there? Two possibilities exist. Either he wanted to see the canals so strongly that his mind convinced him of something that wasn't there, and so he saw it over and over and over again. Or what he saw was actually there, but what it was wasn't what he thought it was. And something like, your double talk there. Well, he, he suffered from a disease. He had a problem. Uh, with his eyes, and actually what he saw, that giant 24-inch in diameter telescope that he would retract it out to be about 3-inch in diameter, well, actually it appears that the telescope began to function not as a telescope, but as an ophthalmoscope, uh, which you go to the eye doctor for as they look into your eyes and study your, your pupils. And, and so what, what actually happened was Sir Percival Lowell wasn't mapping the, the canals or the channels 
and Mars, he was actually mapping the large blood vessels in his own eyes. He had large blood vessels on his bulging eyes. Today, that syndrome or that disease is known as the Lowell syndrome. And so it's easy for us to see something that doesn't exist, just as it is easy for us to fail to see things that clearly exist. Because many times, like Sir Percival Lowell, we simply see what it is that we choose to see. 1 John chapter 4 begins by warning us not to be taken in by deception. In fact, we are to test what we hear against the absolute standard of God's Word. Our days today are just as dangerous spiritually as they were when uh, John wrote this letter. We have to be honest that there are many false teachers, antichrist, spirits of the antichrist teaching that is occurring inside the church as well as outside the church. Therefore, all serious believers must be spiritually discerning. I said it before, and I will say it again, and I will promise you I will say it again in the future. What we teach must be tested. The test isn't according to our feelings, isn't in, 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 inclusive of popular opinion or, or what's culturally right. It's tested in accordance to the Word of God. We live in a dangerous time where deception reigns. Charles Spurgeon once said that saints not only desire to love and to speak truth with their lips, but they seek to be true within. They will not lie even in the closet of their hearts, for God is there listening. They scorn double meanings, evasions, equivocations, white lies, flatteries, and deceptions. Today, it's as though people are consistently arguing over truth, whether or not truth can be absolute or whether or not truth can be even known. What's true for you may not be true for me. Those are phrases that kind of go around. Well, that's your truth, but, but you need to listen in to receive my truth. It's like uh, we get to determine what's true or what's right. American culture clings to the groundless conviction that they can determine for themselves what is true and what is right. Everything is defended by statements such as, who are you to tell me what's right? If it makes me happy, then, then I'll do it. Why do you care so much about what I do? I'm not hurting anybody. Let me live my truth. You heard things like this? Well, I, don't, I just follow my heart and you follow your heart. Let me be clear. Never follow your heart. The Word of God clearly says, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? So that don't buy into the counsel of others that tell you to follow your heart. We live in a time where, where truth is relative and, and tolerance is king. We live in a day and age where, where tolerance of anything is accepted 
encouraged, embraced, expected, well, everything that is except for the message of Jesus Christ. How dare someone proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation? How dare someone be so narrow-minded as to say that there is only one way to get to heaven, and that is faith in Jesus Christ? To, to make such proclamation is sure to bring about indignation and rejection from the world that we live in. May you know that indignation and rejection does not change the truth. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, I pray that you clearly hear what it is I'm about to say to you. When it comes to truth, what you believe, what you think, and what you feel is absolutely irrelevant unless God believes, thinks, and feels the same thing. With that being said, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hold your place there and then find Acts chapter 17. John's warning is clear in this section. Behind every statement is a spirit, but not every spirit is the spirit of God. Therefore, we must test what it is that we hear. Test means to prove or to examine. This is something that we should be doing on a continual basis. That is why I believe, and I will always tell you, that you should be writing this stuff down. If you never take notes about what we talk about as we gather together, as we come together as one, if you never take notes, then how can you go back to make sure that what you heard is the truth? The church needs to be more Berean-minded as we approach the teaching and the receiving of God's Word. So Acts chapter 17, we're told in verse number 10 that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now those were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with another, a number of prominent Greek women and men. So these Bereans exhibited several positive characteristics that marked their response to receiving the Gospel. Scripture says that they were more noble-minded. They were more noble-minded because of their eagerness to receive God's Word into their lives. Not only did they, were they eager to receive His Word, they then examined the Word in which they received. And so they examined what they heard by comparing it to the Scriptures that they had. Verse 11 said, They received the Word with such eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. So the fact that they honestly and eagerly listened and then conducted further 
personal research and investigation on their own led many of the Bereans to faith in Jesus Christ, as well as gave us a positive example of how we should be receiving the Word of God into our lives. Back to 1 John, in 1 John 4, verse 1, it makes it clear that all believers are to exercise the responsibility of discerning truth from error. Just because something or just because someone sounds spiritual does not make it biblical. Spiritual activity is not necessarily godly activity. So we must be discerning. We must listen and evaluate carefully both the message and the messenger against, again, not our feelings, not our preferences, but we measure them against the Word of God. So John continues in verse number 2. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So John not only gives us the command to test all of the teaching, he gives us the actual test that we're to use as we're evaluating teachers and their teaching. Back in verse 2, by this you'll know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what's the test that proves whether or not a teacher is true or false? Well, the test is Jesus. And, and more specifically, the test is the incarnation of Jesus. So what a person believes about Jesus determines whether they're true or false. What a person confesses or teaches about Jesus reveals their spirit. Either they come from the Spirit of God or it's coming from the Spirit of the Antichrist. And notice what it is about Jesus that exposes the teacher. Did he come in the flesh? It's the incarnation. Is Jesus born of God, born of flesh, or not? The true Spirit of God confesses that Jesus came to earth in the flesh, that the incarnation of Christ is absolutely true. So if a teacher has the Spirit of God dwelling within them, then they will confess the wonderful truth that God, through Jesus, became man and dwelt among us so that through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, we might have the hope of salvation. Now, false spirits, well, they will deny that Jesus came in the flesh. False spirits do not believe that God took on human flesh and became a man. False teachers believe that Jesus was only a man, just like every other man. Oh, a great man, perhaps the greatest man, perhaps the greatest man that got closer to God than anyone else. But nevertheless, for the false teacher, Jesus is only a man, a man who taught us how to worship, a man who taught us how to serve God. False teachers will say things that Jesus was not sinless. 
They do not believe in the sinlessness of our Lord. They'll say that he lived close to God, but they believe that no person can achieve sinlessness. False teachers would say that Jesus died, but he didn't necessarily die as the substitute for our sins. He died as a great martyr, showing us how we should face death, showing us how we should be willing to die for the great cause of righteousness. False teachers teach things like, like the resurrection of Jesus didn't actually take place. It's more terminology that's used to describe a spiritual truth, not a physical reality. I want you to understand that the consequences of denying the incarnation of Jesus are absolutely terrifying. Even if we just limit this uh, to the writing of 1 John, if Jesus did not come in the flesh, then that would mean, look at John chapter 1. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, according to John chapter 1, then that would mean that God has not loved us enough to send us the word of life. Verse number 1, chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and then that would mean that God has not loved us enough to reveal himself to us. That would mean that God has not loved us enough to show us eternal life. And that would mean that, that there is no eternal life. Yet chapter 1, verse number 2 says, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. How is that manifested to us? It's manifested to us in and through Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, then that would mean that there is no hope of having fellowship with God. Yet chapter 1, verse number 3 says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then that would mean that there's no joy beyond this life. And yet, verse number 4 of chapter 1 says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then that would mean that there is absolutely no forgiveness available for our sin. Verse number 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if Jesus did not come in the flesh, then that would mean that Jesus is, is not our advocate, nor is He the propitiation for our sin. But chapter 2 begins in verse number 1, and it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sin, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I mean, the list can go on and on, but the point is clearly seen. False teachers destroy the hope and the assurance of salvation. We are left without hope and without God in this world unless God loved us. In fact, unless God loved us enough that He would send His Son, 
to dwell among us. Jesus is the center of the message of the gospel. And if any teacher confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, then that is a true teacher. But if not, it is a false teacher that is teaching from the spirit of the Antichrist. And John reminds his readers that this is something that they have already heard, so they shouldn't be surprised, nor should they be caught off guard. Go back to chapter 4. In the verse number 3, he says, Of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Look at verse number 4. He says, You are from God, little children. You have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The world is the devil's domain. The philosophy of the world is the expression of his values and his agenda. According to John chapter 10, verse number 10, the devil comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But he is rendered powerless by a greater spirit of God that dwells in the life of the believers. And do you understand what this is saying? It's saying that Satan, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, the false prophets, they are no match for our God. As believers yield themselves to the one who lives within them, then they can experience a continual victory in their daily battles with the forces of evil. This is a great promise. It's a great promise that gives us great comfort, great assurance, a great hope. The Spirit of God empowers and enables us to have victory over the adversary. And that's good news. But the Spirit of God does so much more than just that. It also emboldens and equips us to serve one another in love. So God commands us to serve one another in love. And He enables us to carry that command out through the Holy Spirit that He deposits into our lives as the completion of that salvation to come. And so the Holy Spirit works in the lives of the believer, empowering and emboldening us to, to carry out everything that He commands from us. In fact, uh, turn with me. Let's go on a little journey. Just a second. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Yeah, we've got some time. We can do this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Spirit enlightens us to, this, to the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to have victory against the adversary. The Holy Spirit emboldens and equips us to serve one another in love. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to bring a little bit of clarity here that I hope is helpful for you. And so in chapter 12, let's begin. We'll begin in verse number 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, 
and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If a foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if an ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. I cannot say to the hand, I need, have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Those members of the body, which were deemed less honorable, on these would bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members because, uh, become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to that member which lacked. I'm going to explain this all in just a minute. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Okay, pause, right? So, so God is saying that he is the symbol of the body to come together, right? Those who are born of God, who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit deposited into your life. And the Holy Spirit enables you to carry out certain functions so that God can be glorified and his name could be made known. We call these things spiritual gifts. Every child of God has been given a spiritual gift from God. We all don't share in the same gifts. We have differing gifts, right? Because we're many members that form one body. So one person's giftedness is not more important than another person's giftedness. It's just different, okay? So, so we should balance that out and understand that someone's not more special or highly favorable because of the gift that they have in the comparison to the gift that you have. No, it's all in accordance to God's plan, His will, His purpose. He chooses who gets what gift and what that gift is. And, and then he says, um, where did I leave off? Verse 27. No. Uh, verse number 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. Uh, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? The answer to all of those questions is no. Everyone's different. God determines what gift that you have and how that gift is to be used. Then we get to this verse here in verse number 31. Here's where all the confusion kind of settles in. Verse number 31 says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. 
if you just take that one verse out of context, you just extract that one verse without looking at anything else in chapter 2, that verse becomes, I mean, chapter 12, that verse becomes very confusing. I mean, because it could be interpreted as a demand for us to pursue the more prominent gifts that God gives. But the entire chapter has been confronting the fact that this is what they have sinfully been doing. And, and so it is written to correct them. Desiring a specific gift for a personal reason is wrong, sinful. All gifts have been graciously given to God's children based upon His sovereignty in accordance to His will. Chapter 12, verse number 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse number 11, But one of the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Not just as the people choose, but just as God wills. And then verse number 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. So go back to verse number 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. This phrase is not an imperative. This phrase is an indicative statement. It is a statement of fact. I think to bring clarity, it would help to know that this phrase could be more translated as to make sense to us you are desiring the showy gifts wrongly in fact let me show you a more excellent way let me show you the way of love that's what first corinthians chapter 13 is all about it isn't the it isn't the default passage of scripture that's to be read in all the marriages that are performed and that's our go-to. This is addressing something even more significant than that. He said, let me show you uh, something. Let me, let me show you a still more excellent way. 13 verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then here we go. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. And it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is uh, not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. The Holy Spirit has enabled each one of His children to serve for the glory of God. And we must embrace that and pursue that with the spirit of love. Because absent of love, it will not accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish. Go back to 1 John chapter 4. 
in verse number five, plainly says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The Antichrist, the false prophets, they're cut from the same piece of cloth as the world. As a result, they speak the language of the world. They embrace the same values of the world. And so the world listens to them. They, the false teachers, are from the world. But you, the child of God, are from God. So when godly teachers or, or, or preachers or, or, or speakers, when they speak from the Word of God, then God's children are eager to receive the, the Word of God into their hearts and lives. So when godly speakers speak from God's Word, then those who are born of God listen eagerly and like the Bereans, don't just accept it as face value, but, but will go into research and, and study on their own to make sure that, yes, what they've been taught is an absolute truth according to the Word of God. The person who is without the Spirit of God does not accept the things that come from God. They can't. Paul brings clarity to that. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. It says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural mind cannot comprehend, cannot understand, cannot accept the, the Word of God because of its spiritual-minded nature. Therefore, that the natural man needs the regeneration to occur in their lives so that they can receive the teaching from his word. And so, as, as God's children, right, we are commanded, we are expected to be students of his word so that we will not buy into the lies, so we'll not be easily persuaded. So we'll not get distracted from the truth of his word. And just because it sounds spiritual, you need to get into the word of God to make sure that it is absolutely 100% biblical. Because if you don't know his word, then you're going to be deceived with a lot of things that sound scriptural, but they're taken out of context and not rightly applied. So study the entire word of God. And as I wrap this up, let me just remind you that each and every one of us are responsible to test what we hear against the Word of God. We all bear that responsibility. And a person who is attuned to God, who's walking in the right fellowship with God, who's abiding in Christ, 
that person will listen to other believers, but won't just accept what other believers say, but they'll also take what other believers say and will continue to go back to the Word of God to make sure that the, the testimony or the teaching from another believer is actually right in accordance with God's Word. The Spirit of God that abides in us is greater than Satan, the prince of this world. Don't you ever forget that. Walk around with your head up. Victory is assured. We're not defeated. Our victory is in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells within His children. So we don't have to buy into the lies. We don't have to get into the temptations. We can avoid the lies by knowing His Word, and we can avoid the temptations by taking our eyes off the temptation and putting them on the escape route that God promised us that He would provide in each and every temptation that we face. Therefore, as God's children, we are not to be seduced by false teachers. We are not to be influenced by false worship. And there's a lot of that going on. And we're not to be deceived by false witnesses. Today, just as in the time that John wrote this letter, we must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That God sent His Son to this earth because of His great love for us. All that might believe and confess in Him can receive the salvation that He longs to give and as recipients of the salvation that's provided to us through Jesus, then we're gifted and we're empowered with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwelling within us, enabling us to be able to detect truth from error, reminding us of the Scripture, and the truths that we've been taught, empowering and emboldening us to live a life of faithful service and commitment unto Him. I want you to realize that as God's children, the Holy Spirit is desiring not just to be in you, but to work through you. You have a gift, a gift that's to be used for the honor and for the glory of God. We as a church, we will do all that we can do to help you discover what that gift is and how that gift can be used for the kingdom of God. But ultimately, the burden of responsibility falls upon you. You've got to receive that teaching. You've got to, you've got to know that as God's children, you're still alive and you're still alive. You still have a purpose. God still has a plan for you. He's not done with you. If, you, if he was done with you, then he'd take you home. But you're here. Amen. That's great news. There's greater news to come, but right now you're still here among us all. So God still has a plan and a purpose for you in your life. The Holy Spirit still resides in you if you're a child of God. Holy Spirit still has the ability to empower you to serve Him and to serve one another. And yet, here I am reminded of the great lack of ministry leaders in key areas in the life of the church, and it makes no sense to me. None at all. 
One of the greatest needs that we have in our church are for men and for women who will faithfully be a part of teaching and instructing our children the Word of God. Not that we do that we don't do this in place of the parents' responsibility to do that at home. We do this in cooperation with parents, to walk side by side with them, to, to show them, hey, this is what we're teaching, this is what you can do, and we help them and we enable and we empower them to do that at home. But we want to be assistants in that. We want to help the spiritual training that God has given the parents the responsibility to do for their children. And yet, as far as I know, as far back as I can trace it, we have always been a lack of volunteers in children's ministry. It makes no sense to me. So question becomes, do we believe that teaching children the Word of God is a priority and is of utmost importance to the life of this church? Yeah, we say it, but do we believe it enough that we're willing to change, that we're willing to love and serve. Remember love? What's love? Love, love, love puts the needs of others before ourselves. Love, love, love demonstrates in action selflessly and sacrificially giving. It's one thing to say it, and then we're the people that are going to step up and say, I am here. Put me to work. I want to do what God has enabled me and empowered me to do. That's just one example. I'm not trying to beat everyone down and leave you here frustrated and discouraged. No, I want you to know that as a child of God, possessor of the Spirit of God, and God wants to do something in and through your life. And you're not here by accident. You have a giftedness given to you by the sovereignty of God. And he has graciously brought you together to this assembly of believers so that your giftedness could be used for his glory. And if you're not serving in the capacity that God has equipped you to serve, then you are hindering the effectiveness of the church. That is a humbling concept to, to wrestle with. And may we as God's children have a great love for his word. May we as God's children not just love the words by saying it, but love his word by living it out, demonstrating it. May his word radically change who we are. May it reprioritize the things in our lives so that we will completely spend ourselves for the betterment of his kingdom. Not for our attention, not for our glory, but so that he may be known and be glorified in and among us. With that being said, I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to give you a closing benediction. And as I do, may you know that the staff and I, we are here and available to talk with you, to encourage you, to pray with you in any way that we can. We love you. and We are here to serve you. So may God bless you. And God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always be with you. So don't be afraid. Go, glorify God, and seek to make his glory known by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the preaching, teaching, and proclamation of his word, and by serving one another 
in, in truth, love, and grace. Amen.